This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Well, we're starting out with what is surely a first for Radio Parallax. Coming in to record this program after having just been out trying to see the rocket launch from Vandenberg Air Force Base. We are, in fact, recording this program on Wednesday evening, about 30 minutes after they evidently scrubbed the launch from Vandenberg, which is a doggone shame because Mr. Merlin and I had a ringside seat looking to the southwest. The weather cooperated, and it was looking pretty good for our viewing except that there was evidently some sort of hydrogen leak on the rocket and they scrubbed so we are a tad disappointed it's it's quite a thing to see one of these rockets go up i guess the way i would describe it is imagine a flashlight in a dusty room being lifted up and seeing all the dust particles illuminated they apparently put on quite a show down in santa barbara but it's no problem to see one in the bay area or in sacramento or even further north in California, Northern California, that is. I'm sure they have a better angle on it down in Southern California, but you know how the smog is down there sometimes. Anyway, we're not sure when it's rescheduled, but I hope that you will check on some appropriate website, dear listener, and see if you can't go out and look to the Southwest and uh, catch one of these spectacles. Now, what's odd about this little event was that although they scrubbed the rocket launch, apparently... Something decided to re-enter Earth's atmosphere at just about, you know, a minute or two before the scheduled launch. And it was very, very bright. I did not see it coming down. I saw the immediate aftermath. Mr. McMillan saw it and was quite impressed. Yes, he was. (laughs) This thing left what looked like a contrail illuminated by a searchlight. I mean, it was really, really bright. And, um... Stayed in the sky. I mean, it looked like a smoky contrail that stayed up there for at least 15 minutes, which is, as you might know, unusual for a meteor. Although, again, I mean, it was so big, I wonder if it was a, a piece of space rock or whether it was something re-entering the Earth's atmosphere. I'm sure they'll figure that out in the next day or so. But, uh, yeah, I mean, what a, what a happy coincidence. Since we're starting out uh, in a space news genre, you might say, I, I think we need to uh, cite... The big item that uh, that hit the papers of this nation a couple days ago. Uh, and yes, I realize most people don't get their information from the papers, but I just like to say it that way. But here's the deal. The crack astronomers at the University of Hawaii, and evidently also at Northern Arizona U- University, have now located the furthest out object in our solar system anybody has ever located. And this thing is way out there. And to describe how far, we may have to use the term astronomical unit, which is the distance that we are, Earth, planet Earth, from the sun. Count that as one, and the distance out to Pluto is 34. One AU is about 93 million miles if you're keeping score. But let's stick to the AU notation. Pluto, I think, goes out as far as 40 AU. I think currently it's at like 34. This new object is 120 astronomical units out there. Now, 120 AU is roughly the distance we've been talking about in terms of the Voyager 1 and now Voyager 2 spacecraft going out and leaving the solar system. 
This thing is being called a dwarf planet, perhaps in this case, legitimately. They've been throwing the name out dwarf planet for some other things that were too small. But this object is about 300 miles in diameter. It, it may, in fact, be large enough to have been shaped by gravity into a sphere. At present, we know very little about this object except a guess at how big it is, an idea of what its surface color is, which is reddish, and, of course, how far out it is. Now, to get an idea of how far these things are, we should probably compare them to, well, let's do a thought exercise here. Let's say you wanted to drive out to this new object. Oh, the object has been officially designated 2018 VG18, but someone decided that's not very handy, so it's been re-nicknamed Far Out. It is the first thing anybody has discovered, more than 100 AU out there. Um, although that gets a little complicated. We have some other objects like uh, Sedna, which has a very elliptical orbit, which we know goes way further out there, out to where the comets are, the Oort cloud, which is something like, I don't know, 500 to 1,000 AU. But to get 120 astronomical units away, let's just say you were going to use the family car. If your magical car could be pointed straight up and driven out to the object, 11 billion miles away, it'd take you a while to get there. In fact, you'd be behind the wheel for more than 21,000 years. That's more time than anybody wants to spend cooped up in a car, especially if you're there with family members. Oh, that's if you're going 60 miles an hour. If you could, of course, max the car out at 120, you'd get there in half the time. Now, of course, the further out you go, the less fast you have to go to stay in orbit. Here on planet Earth, we have to clip off 19 miles every second or else we would crash into the sun. Far out, on the other hand, has been estimated to orbit at about one mile per second. At that speed, it would take it more than 1,000 years to make one revolution around the sun. Far out was discovered as part of the team of David Tholen at the University of Hawaii and Chad Trujillo at Northern Arizona University, who have joined Michael Brown in searching for the long-hypothesized Planet Nine. Last October, as you may recall, this team announced they discovered another extremely distant object known as the Goblin at 80 AU. They're trying to find a sizable planet way, way out there in the far reaches of space, perhaps out as far as the Oort cloud, that is influencing these objects like the Goblin, like Sedna, like Eris, like this newly discovered far out, to have the strange orbits which they have. Now, the evidence is looking more and more as though there is such a planet out there. We just have to find it. And no, as far as we know, no one is searching for the mysterious Nibiru, alleged to crash into the Earth sometime soon, even though nobody's ever seen it or calculated how it could be. They don't even allege that it's in any location. They just say that it's there, it exists, and it's going to cause trouble. But that's more for the astrology crowd. Anyway, they don't have enough of a make on the orbit of far out to know whether it's going to add some data to this search, but maybe it will. They're going to keep watching it for the next few years. Well, they'll keep watching it forever, I'm sure. And uh, time will tell. We find all this stuff quite interesting and do hope that, you know, as, uh, as announcements are made, we can have some of the appropriate people talk to us about the search out in the far reaches of our solar system. Let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly, shall we? Go 
According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for clones, or perhaps in this case, not being a clone. With the news that the president of Nigeria, Mohamedou Buhari, has finally denied, he has denied a widespread rumor that he had died and has been replaced by a Sudanese body double. The president was evidently in Poland uh, a week or two ago at the UN Climate Conference and took the time to tell reporters, I can assure you all that this is the real me. Later this month, I will celebrate my 76th birthday, and I'm still going strong. Evidently, the president was in London for much of 2017 receiving medical treatment, and one visit at the UK lasted three months. But Buhari never told Nigerians about the nature of his particular illness. Thus, rumors spread that he had died and been replaced by a doppelganger named Jabril. This went viral in October when campaigning began for the 2019 presidential election with before and after photos circulating on social media. Of course, as Mr. McMillan points out, well, isn't that just exactly what a Sudanese body double would say? And speaking of space, it was a bad week a couple of weeks back for astronauts with the announcement of the discovery of an unknown strain of drug-resistant bacteria in the toilets of the International Space Station. NASA has said the bugs are, quote, not an active threat, unquote, but need to be monitored. Well, that's because, you know, the bacteria are not trying to, like, take over operations of the International Space Station. And it was, on the other hand, an ugly week for convenience, at least convenience down in Brisbane, Australia, after residents of two retirement villages in the city protested plans to build a crematorium adjacent to their facilities said resident Ron Wells, and I hope I can do this justice. We all know we're going to go sometime or other, but we don't want to be reminded on a daily basis every time we go shopping. And you know, this time of year we need to do some good news items. We, we used to make that a regular part of the program, at least one good news feature. Here's one that I think will qualify. In what could be a major breakthrough for aeronautics, scientists have created an electric airplane with no moving parts. Ever since the first man-made flight 115 years ago, that was an anniversary the beginning of this month, December 1903, 115 years ago, the Wright brothers got things in the air. Well, ever since then, aircraft have relied upon propellers, turbines, or other moving parts to propel them through the air. This new so-called solid-state aircraft, developed by scientists at MIT, instead uses ionic wind technology. Batteries and a high-voltage converter create an electric field along a series of fine wires. This field knocks electrons from nitrogen in the air, turning them into charged ions. The ions then collide with normal air molecules, creating an ionic wind that's expelled from the back of the wings, generating thrust. The unmanned prototype craft, which has a 16-foot wingspan and weighs 5.4 pounds, flew nearly 200 feet in a gymnasium test flight. It's reported to have a thrust-to-power ratio similar to a jet engine, but is essentially silent. Will this uh, model scale up to a workable aircraft? Well, nobody's saying yet, but that would be something. And of course, you know, the military has got to be interested in this. Uh, the MIT people say that they think this ionic wind technology could, at the very least, lead to quieter drones. Oh, great. Not that I like noisy drones. No, I just am not, I'm anti-drone. You know, this, this does get me wondering. Realizing I have some allergy issues, I was considering buying an air ionizer a few weeks back. Instead, I wind up getting, I wind up getting one of those HEPA filters, which um, 
does not produce ozone like the ionizers do. Now, I think this, this airplane must rely on something similar to that, creating a charge differential that ionizes atoms uh, or molecules must be related. I'm not an electrical engineer, and if you are, why don't you drop us a line at Info at Radio Parallax and explain this technology. I do know that back when I was a college student working for Hunt Wesson Foods, first in Hayward, California, and later in Davis, California, I did at one point have the plum job of being the condiment clerk, one of just a few, whose job it was to weigh out the various condiments used on all the assembly lines. One of the products, I think it might have been tomato sauce, used uh, starch in the manufacturing process, and my job was to weigh out the appropriate batches of starch to find its way into the hopper. We had a little room set aside in the plant to weigh out all of these condiments and put them in the mixers, and you know, so you could put so much bell pepper with so much onion and mix them all up. But when I had to weigh out the starch into, I think, 40-pound batches, I mean, we tried to be neat about it, but this, this fine material would just, you know, go up and out and all over the place. They brought the engineers in and they said, let's get an ionizer. I kept asking the engineers, how does this thing work? I never got a straight answer because I'm not sure they understood it. But I'll tell you this, the thing worked. My cohorts and I would weigh out packets of starch and starch would get away But instead of going up and out and all over the plant, it would move laterally and then, I don't know how to describe this, like a a fog bank uh, coming over the uh, the foothills would then move downward and disappear. I guess the the starch particles were getting charged and then they would stick to the walls of the building, the floor of the building, and not go very far. So I know they work. I was thinking about getting one for the house, but it turns out in the process of charging all of these particles so they stick and don't go down your trachea, they also produce a lot of ozone, and that's not good for your breathing. So anyway, I'm pretty sure someone out there listening to this knows a great deal about what I'm talking about, far more than I do, and I hope they will drop a line to us at info at radioparallax.com, and we encourage all of you to do so if you'd like to chip into this program and offer suggestions. We often take them. Now, I didn't take that one about suggesting I take a flying leap, but a lot of them we do. Well, that was me. I like to do follow-ups in this program wherever possible. And uh, I just have a, just a, a very brief follow-up on that story we did about the spider. In this case, the jumping spider species that apparently... Uh, feeds its young a kind of milk-like product a spider seems like they do it's a pretty interesting story science seems to be solid behind it but i guess what struck me was a picture of this particular spider this thing is a dead ringer for a large ant i mean a dead ringer except that it's got eight legs like it's supposed to and although it looks like it's got three-part body symmetry like an insect and not two-part like an arachnid. It just, it, I, I don't know. This is an amazing example of mimicry in evolution. Now, why this spider wants to look like an ant, that I don't know. Except there aren't that many things out there that, that eat ants. I know there's ant eaters. I know there's things that do eat ants, pangolins, all sorts of animals. But, uh, but by and large, they're not on the menu for most species out there. So maybe that's why it does it. I, I don't know. Yes, lots of things eat spiders. Mr. McMillan. 
And a science item, well, science slash medicine item we think is pretty creepy. This whole idea of uh, genetic engineering humans, which they've apparently now done in China, is making a lot of people nervous. They now have a firm out there, Genomics Prediction, that's claiming it has genetic screening tests that can assess complex traits in an individual. Uh, So far, they say that they can only offer an option of screening out embryos that they deem likely to have mental disability. But really, how long will that be before they start making claims that we can tell when they're going to have a genius child or not? Or the next step, how we can manipulate the genes so your child will be a genius. Well, speaking of geniuses and technology, and how's that for a segue? This might be an excellent time to recycle that quote from Albert Einstein we used on the show a few months back. Which is, a little bit surprisingly, said Einstein, technological progress is like an axe in the hands of a pathological criminal. Well, sometimes you wonder, don't you? And some more promising and uh, upbeat news from the world of medicine. We have the fact that there's long been speculation that mononucleosis, infectious mononucleosis, better known to you as mono, because you may have had it, might be what underlies cases of the neurodegenerative condition, multiple sclerosis. Many studies have now confirmed that almost every person with MS carries the virus and that non-carriers almost never develop the condition. After most episodes of mono, the virus lies dormant in immune cells called B lymphocytes without causing any further problems. This is according to researchers in Australia. But evidence suggests that problems with some people's immune systems allow the virus-infected B cells to invade the brain and spine. The cells may then go rogue, attacking the protective coating around the nerves, leading to the hallmark damage seen in MS. These scientists got the idea they may be able to help the situation by boosting one's immune response to the Epstein-Barr virus, which causes mono. Some years back, they first tested this idea on a man who had MS. They extracted a subset of his his immune cells called T-cells, exposed them to Epstein-Barr virus antigens, trained them to thus attack the virus. They then re-injected the cells into the man's body. He reported feeling less tired, having fewer painful leg spasms, and being more productive at work. Now, this is pretty preliminary stuff, but it is promising. This is a disease where breakthroughs are needed. And wouldn't it be wonderful if this turns out to be one? And here's an item that should clear the air a little bit in the, um, what I would call, stupidity surrounding the so-called opioid crisis in America. I'm not saying there's not people that are dying because of the misuse of opioids. There always have been. But to hear it told, uh, doctors out there are misprescribing and giving people too, too many of these drugs when they should be treating people's conditions with aspirin or Tylenol or Advil which after 30 years in medicine, I can tell you is a lot of hooey. For more on that, we refer you to our archives for our discussion with pain specialist Roger Orman on this very topic, something we did um, last spring. But now we have something from author Sui Lee Wee writing in the New York Times. The author said, China vows to curtail its flow of the deadly opioid fentanyl into America adding there's little to cheer about. We've heard all this before. In 2016, the Obama administration said China had agreed on measures to stem the powerful drug's entrance into the U.S. But its follow-up has been patchy at best. China's drug industry 
is the main source of illegal fentanyl, a potent drug that led to a record 70,000 overdose deaths in America last year. Amen. They keep lumping together deaths from Chinese fentanyl with people who are dying from supposedly taking their Tylenol with codeine. Apples and oranges. At any rate, China now says it will designate fentanyl as a controlled substance. Oh, good idea. President Trump touted this as a wonderful humanitarian gesture and emphasized that Chinese sellers of fentanyl can be subject to the death penalty. But many classes of fentanyl are already designated controlled substances in China. And it's simple to create similar yet distinct substances. So new versions can be concocted quickly. These new fentanyl derivatives enter the market faster than they can be controlled. In China, there are evidently 160,000 chemical companies and fentanyl production is thriving. It's a lucrative industry. Weak regulation means that those producing fentanyl substances will probably still be willing to sell them despite the new ban. Whatever agreement on opioids China may proclaim, the problem for Washington is getting Beijing to fulfill its promises. I think this is getting much closer to the real issue of what's happening out there than this idea that uh, that doctors are just massively overprescribing these substances. Some doctors do. Some, I mean, to say that some patients abuse it is, well, it's so obvious. I think probably every day of my medical career, it was an issue. It's, it's just an everyday issue in medicine. There are people that abuse drugs. They're going to try and con you out of drugs. You have to keep that in mind. You have to, you know prescribe wisely. At the same time, the idea that we're going to get by without using these drugs for people that desperately need them is just uh, enough of that. We, uh, like you, have been following the political antics going on surrounding Russiagate and the Trump administration. We're going to try and hold in reserve the end-of-year issues of uh, The Economist and The Week for next week's program, which will be the final for 2018. Oh, and by the way, happy winter solstice. Yes, December 21st is the shortest day of the year. Every other day is longer, unless you live in Australia, in which case this is the longest day of the year and every other day is shorter. But I did want to go to their end of the year quiz a little prematurely under the heading from russia with love just 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 to throw some of these out there and see if you've been paying attention dear listener because even though we've been covering this story i'd have gotten some of these wrong question number one how many campaign officials trump associates and russians has special counsel robert Mueller indicted so far you can take credit for a correct answer if you get within five of the right number question number two legally speaking what do the following former trump associates have in common Campaign Chairman Paul Manafort, Deputy Campaign Chairman Rick Gates, Foreign Policy Advisor George Papadopoulos, National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, and Trump's personal lawyer Michael Cohn. And question number three. While there is no crime called collusion in federal law, Statute 18 U.S.C. 371 defines a crime that could apply if anyone in the Trump campaign was working in cooperation with Russians to evade U.S. laws and influence the U.S. election. What is that crime called? (music) 
All right, the answers. How many campaign officials, Trump associates, and Russians has Robert Mueller indicted so far? 33. What do all of those former Trump associates have in common? They have all pled guilty. And what would we call the crime if anyone in the Trump campaign worked in cooperation with the Russians to evade U.S. law? Well, that would be called conspiracy. I'll tell you what, you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to theorize that some people are going to go down for conspiracy. I'm going to save most of this quiz for next week's program, but I do want to do question number 11 from their 40 questions to test your knowledge of the year's events, which was, after being elected senator from Utah, Mitt Romney became the first American with this distinction since Sam Houston in 1846. Four wives? (laughs) Sam Houston was not a Mormon. No, while we were covering what happened on Election Day, we missed the fact that Mitt Romney was, in fact, elected senator from Utah after being governor of Massachusetts. But I would say, luckily for most of us, he was not ever elected president of the United States. Now, speaking of Paul Manafort, well, he spells it with a T. I don't know why he comes out with a, with a D. Then again, I would note that we are very fond of Morning Edition host on Capital Public Radio, Donna Abadoni. But do note that Donna's last name is actually spelled with a P. But if you're in broadcasting, the popping P is your enemy. To pronounce P in the English, you have to blow out a puff of air. When you do so into a microphone, well, it it causes trouble. Trust me. So I think that's why Donna softened her surname. I don't blame her. I would have too. And by the way, I, I do have to admit, as I do on occasion... Then my real name is actually not Douglas Everett. I just chose that name to use on the radio because it sounded more showbizy. For the record, my real name is Shecky Fleckman. How many times have we used that joke, Mr. McMillan? Twice. Yeah, yeah, it's a good one. That's why we're going to keep using it. Uh, anyway, this thing about Paul Manafort, or is it Paul Manafort, his scurrilous history of shilling for dictators led to an essay I was reading somewhere about what the work he did for Jonas Savimbi, the guerrilla leader in Angola who got caught up in Cold War politics. The Russians were backing one faction. America and the South Africans wound up backing Savimbi, supposedly an anti-leftist, yada, yada, yada. He was a pretty sharp guy, Savimbi was, spoke like seven languages, but um, he was also a bit of a ruthless killer. And when they brought him to Washington, Manafort managed to squire him around and meet President George Herbert Walker Bush and other officials in in Washington. He'd previously been given the Grand Tour and, and, uh, and met Reagan, I think, also. He was certainly held up as a freedom fighter in Africa, although, you know, that was Manafort's PR work. Angola is a country that interests me. It's got a lot of oil. It's got a lot of oil money. It was first run by a leftist coalition, and then it descended into graft and corruption, as so many states do in Africa, unfortunately. I think I'm going to close this segment with a quote about the current state of affairs in Angola that comes from The Economist, simply because I love how The Economist writes. Under the headline, Party Guy, and the subheadline, Why Joao Lorenzo Wants to Be Angola's Deng Xiaoping, the article says, quote, An industrial zone should be a noisy place. At the Zona Economica Special, a Manhattan-sized plot near Luanda, Angola's capital, the only sound is birdsong. Quote, My boss said to only show you the factories that are working, a guide tells your correspondent. 
Yet all is not well at a hand-picked pipe manufacturer. It operates at 10% capacity. Power has just gone out, so unfinished tubes droop out of machines like saggy wizard sleeves. Would you like to take a photo of a worker pretending to use this machine? Asked the guide. The Zona Econigma Especial, the Z, is a monument to Angola's gigantism, corruption, and folly. The country is sub-Saharan Africa's third largest economy and its second largest oil exporter. From 2002, when the Civil War ended, until 2015, GDP grew by almost 10% a a year. But little wealth trickles down to ordinary Angolans, nearly two-thirds of whom live on less than $2 a day. The elite in the ruling MPLA party stole or squandered billions on projects such as the Z. In the zone, the state runs 73 factories, which splurge on everything from machines to uniforms without a nod to cost. Anyway, the president may want to imitate uh, Deng Xiaoping and jumpstart Angola out of the doldrums it's in. And uh, I guess we should just wish him well in that. Unfortunately for him, Paul Manafort is no longer available to help burnish his image. We need a, a short break, so why don't we take one? This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stick around.